0: in podcast land and welcome back to tour guide tell all we are your friendly neighborhood dc tour guides who are back with you for another spicy installment of dc and american history and i'm rebecca i'm becca and we are
1: the the rebecca's Rebeccas. (laughs) six months it makes me laugh every time every time (laughs) it's the little things i know
0: So we are back this week. It is now December and we are talking about some fun stuff. We're going to do some presidential type scandals. But this week we have a uh, lesser known but still really cool scandal to talk to you about. Uh, It's called the Petticoat Affair and you'll figure out why, but it's really fun and it involves Andrew Jackson and many other people. So yeah, Becca, take it away.
1: For me, first of all, the Petticoat Affair is an amazing name. I think that it would be it to me it reads like a bodice ripper title like this would be some sort of a sultry book you would take to the beach the petticoat affair um or it sounds like an old like period movie I love this story because it kind of combines several things that you and I love which is women's history Mm -hmm. which there's some really interesting women at play in the story presidential history uh we're going to mention a lot of names today that have come up in previous episodes and it's sort of this great little scandal so we love scandals we love women's history we love presidents So this has a little bit of everything. Uh, Surrounding the story centers on a woman named Peggy O'Neill Timberlake Eaton, which is a mouthful, and you are going to learn why she has all of those names. I will also, as a little caveat to the beginning of the story, say that there are two Johns in this story, because John was a super common name in the early 19th century in America. So we are going to do our best to use last names and make it less confusing, because if we just called everybody John, you would have no idea what's going on.
0: Right, and it does get very confusing. You're right, I never thought about it. The petticoat does make you think of like a bodice ripper.
1: It does, the petticoat affair. It's the right
0: time period, too. This is like all those
1: Regency romance
0: novels. This is that time. Cool, (laughs) let's do it.
1: So our story starts with Margaret Peggy O'Neill. She is a D.C. native born in Washington, D.C., and her father runs and owns the Franklin House, which was a boarding house and tavern very close to the White House, so uh, likely located right off of 16th Street, just a few blocks from the White House. Uh, This was sort of a social hub for political types, for military types. It was not far, again, from the White House, so people would be coming and going for business and then they would stay at the Franklin House or they'd gather to drink and eat and talk. Peggy is raised in this boarding house environment, which is very much a male environment. This is a male space, but she is lovely. She's well-educated. Her father teaches her French, so she's bilingual, and she learns to play the piano. So you can imagine at a very young age, she is assisting her father at this tavern. So she's working. She's serving. She's entertainment, playing piano for the men. And this raises some eyebrows. This is like the 18-teens This is still, the city is not a city. D.C. is still basically a rough town at this point. There are not, there's not a lot of civilization yet really in D.C. And here's this teenage girl working in a tavern. And people definitely notice. They notice her and they notice this weird situation.
0: Yeah, I can super see the tendency, particularly later on in life for her, for people to be like,
1: I don't know. Tavern, seems a little sketchy. Yeah. yeah, there were definitely, at this time period, there were sort of respectable spaces for women and men to coexist, but they were few and far between. And this was now one of them. <laughs> you can already sort of imagine that any respectable woman is looking at this man who's raising his really pre-teen daughter into her early teen years in this tavern. So there's already a lot of eyebrows raised. And she would say later, while I was still in pantalettes and rolling hoops with other girls, I had the attention of men, young and old enough to turn a girl's head so she is pretty and she knew it and she knew that the attention she was getting from men was very 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 friendly and so by the time she is 15 she almost gets married she tries to run away and elope with an army officer that she meets in this tavern and luckily her father puts a stop to it before they actually get married. But you can already tell. So at 15, she's trying to elope. So she's definitely not shy about the attention she's getting. And at the age of 17, which I guess back then they were like, okay, 17, you can get married. She marries John Timberlake. This is 1816. So This is right after the War of 1812. He is a naval purser, so he handles naval finances and naval money. He is 39 when they get married, so if you're doing the math, that's 22 years older than she is.
0: This is not a good... I, I sense this not going well. I sense this not being a very good match for Peggy.
1: Yeah, and you can sort of see, like, he's he's a naval officer, so that's got some cachet. It's a good job. It's a respectable job. But he's so much older. He is a drunk. He has a drinking problem and a debt problem. And so he's got all this money in debt. So their marriage is going to start out on very rocky footing.
0: I would like to point out, she clearly has a thing for uniforms. Really <laughs> early on, like, the guys in her father's pub clearly is attracting, like, a military clientele and... We've all been there. I mean, come on. We've you know,
1: we, we like a we man like, in we uniform. We like a man in uniform. Just saying. <laughs> I could certainly say the, uniform, the uniform's done its thing. <laughs> so here she is, Peggy O'Neill, now Peggy O'Neill Timberlake, and she is married at the age of 17. Across the America as it exists at this time, in Tennessee, is a man named John Eaton. He was originally born and raised in North Carolina, but he moves to Tennessee to practice law. And he is also a military man. He joins the Tennessee militia. And if you were in the Tennessee militia in the early 1800s, you become friendly with Andrew Jackson because Andrew Jackson – is also in the Tennessee militia, becomes a big hero during the War of 1812. And so John Eaton and Andrew Jackson are brothers in arms, and they become very good friends. And in fact, Eaton will ultimately become a military aide to Andrew Jackson. John Eaton is going to marry a young woman named Mira Lewis, but she dies before they even have a chance to have children. So she falls ill and dies very early in their marriage. So very, very sad. He is so close to her sister, Mary. So they were Mira and Mary. And he's so close to their sister Mary that everybody in Tennessee thinks he's just going to marry the sister, which did happen back then. You know, you lose a wife, you marry the next best thing. But he doesn't. He's sort of in his grief, decides that he's going to get into politics. So he is going to run for the state legislature in Tennessee, uh, and he serves there briefly. But in 1818, so a couple years after Peggy gets married, John Eaton is elected to the United States Senate. He is 28 years old. When he becomes a senator.
0: Wait a minute. I don't think that's allowed. I think the Constitution is pretty specific about this.
1: Yeah, you might have noticed if you've listened to some of our other podcasts, particularly when we're talking about Henry Clay, there was a real loosey-goosey enforcement of these age requirements in the Constitution, which is funny to me because they bothered to put age requirements in the Constitution and yet had no interest in enforcing them in the first 50 to 75 years of our country.
0: Yeah, that sounds good.
1: So, and it also to me, 28 years old, and this is one of my soapboxes if you follow me on Twitter, is how old Congress is today comparatively and how old especially the Senate is. And just to think about having a senator who's 28 years old.
0: Yeah, I'm, I mean, this isn't really relevant to this podcast, but I'm really not a fan of the idea that you have to have a certain age. To be, I mean, I know why they did it in the Constitution. I also know why they then disregarded it. But I feel like you're a citizen, you should be able to run for the legislature that governs the passes the laws that govern your life.
1: Once you're old enough to pay taxes, I sort of feel like you might as well, you have a right to be part of the representative government. I agree. That's, that's our little, that's our little bit of politicking for today. So, John Eaton's 28. He gets elected to the United States Senate. He is the youngest person to have ever served in the Senate that we know of <laughs> and here's partially why that's uncertain is birth records in the late 1700s early 1800s were super spotty that's probably why they couldn't really enforce the 30-year-old age requirement because this is not like today where we have much better documentation at your birth people were born at home and unless your family thought to write it in the family bible or make some sort of documentation there may be no government record about you until you're old enough to own property, or register to vote or do anything like that. So
0: I also feel like if you want to run for the Senate at like 27 or 28 years old, you probably will do your best to muddy the waters around your age because you know, you're not supposed to. Also, Tennessee back then was the wild, wild west. So yeah,
1: Legitimately, the the Wild West. That was the Western portion of the United States at the time. So this this young man, truly young man, will move to Washington, D.C. So he moves to D.C. to become a senator. At the time that he moves to D.C., John Eaton will become very friendly with Peggy and John Timberlake. So the Timberlakes and John Eaton all become very, very friendly very quickly. So they're all sort of mingling in the same social circle. Peggy does have three children with Timberlake pretty quickly. She has two daughters and a son that dies, sadly, in infancy. So she and Timberlake do have children, but their relationship is rocky. Timberlake's drinking is a problem. His debt is a huge problem. She continues working at her father's tavern as a married woman and a mother, which if you thought it was scandalous as a teenage girl, it is doubly so once she is married and once she has children. It's considered Very embarrassing. But she needs to because she needs the money. The family needs the money. Now, all this time here she is struggling to make ends meet and kind of dealing with her husband. She has this senator, John Eaton, who is very handsome, who is much closer to her age, and who is very kind to her and very helpful. So they form a very close personal bond.
0: Now, what do you mean by close personal bond, Becca?
1: Now, I'm going to go, I'm a historian. We'll go by the facts. We have no historical evidence that it was anything more than friendship. Sure. Now, certainly rumors abounded about how close Peggy and Eaton were because they were much closer than you would expect a married woman and a widower to be. So there's a little bit there. Now, John Eaton, by all accounts, seems to be really trying to help out the Timberlakes. As a senator, he basically puts forth a bill in the Senate that says the United States Navy should pay all of the Navy purser's debts, which is John Timberlake. So basically, he puts together a bill that says the Navy should relieve all of your debt because you acquired this debt as part of your job, which... Is not exactly how he gets the debt, but this is basically Eaton using the United States Senate to bail out his friend's husband. Now, this doesn't pass. It doesn't pass the Senate. Wait a
0: minute. <laughs> Do you mean to tell me that senators use their office for personal gain?
1: They certainly try, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that at all. So he tries this. He tries this sort of maneuver, and it fails in the Senate. And then John Eaton just pays off all of Timberlake's debts himself which is a pretty generous thing to do. Or maybe not, we'll see, we'll see what you think in a few minutes. But he pays off all this debt. The Timberlakes are now debt-free. And then John Eaton takes it a step further. And he gets John Timberlake a primo world-class naval assignment in the Mediterranean squadron. Uh-oh. <laughs> which as the name suggests
0: is in the Mediterranean.
1: Which is far away from Washington, D.C. It is, yes.
0: Wait a minute.
1: And again, this is the 1820s at this point. So just to get to the Mediterranean and back, you are gone a good half year.
0: So we have a senator who's a widower and he's paid off the debt of a family and then gets the husband of the same family sent halfway around the world essentially for months at a time.
1: That is that is exactly the situation. <laughs> and so with Timberlake gone for months and months and months and months at a time, John Eaton moves right in. He is seen escorting Peggy around town. He plays with the children. And he is basically acting in every outward way as though he is the head of this family. Now, again, what happened between him and Peggy behind closed doors We have no real evidence that it was anything untoward. But the gossip in D.C. at this time is very much that Peggy and John Eaton are having an affair. You
0: would think, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but you'd think that if they're actually having an affair, they'd have been a little bit more circumspect and private about it.
1: In some ways, that's sort of my mentality, is that I almost feel that they would have been better if they were trying to hide something.
0: (laughs) Right, like they would have been... More quiet about it. The fact that they're like in everybody's face and he's like escorting her around and playing with her kids leads me to believe that obviously he wants to hit that, but that he isn't because if they were trying to be private about it, they'd be more private about it.
1: This is also to to kind of il- illuminate the timeline a little bit. From the time he meets, John Eaton meets the Timberlakes to the time that we get to the next step of the story is like a decade. So this is not just... He moved to town and in six months, he swooped in, gotten rid of the husband and and is stepping in. This goes over the course of years. So I think it is very much a natural friendship that clearly blossoms into something more.
0: So it's like a slow burn.
1: It's a bit of a slow burn. So naturally, John Timberlake is away. He's in the Mediterranean squadron. He is at this point in his late 40s, which is not young for the era. And that naval life, it's hard. And all that drinking and traveling and all that hard living catches up to John Timberlake. And he dies at sea in April of 1828. Now, everybody in Washington, D.C. basically says that Timberlake killed himself. It is gossip. It's heavy gossip. It's printed in papers and letters and stories that Timberlake kills himself. He takes his own life at sea because he knows that his wife has been untrue. So that's sort of the gossip in town truthfully the truth of this is that he dies of pneumonia and pulmonary disease which is just more likely (laughs) and is not does not surprise me that that's the truth but of course as you can probably guess as you listen to this Peggy is not going to be a widow for very long she's going to turn around and marry John Eaton nine months later wow that's a
0: pretty fast turnaround
1: so yeah typically an appropriate mourning period was considered at least a year But she doesn't wait the full year. And she swoops in with this guy who's basically been around the whole time. And so it definitely causes... Some ruffling in d c society. Nothing about Peggy's life at this point has been the respectable path. She was this very open, flirtatious teenage girl. She worked in this male space. She married this much older man. Then she kind of carried on this friendship close relationship with a man. and then she remarries, like as soon as her first husband dies. So she has really had quite a trajectory by the time that she is only like not even thirty years old. So here we are. We have John Eaton, Peggy Eaton now, and they are newly wed. And their entire relationship, I should mention, was very much encouraged by Andrew Jackson. John Eaton, as I said before, was very close to Jackson. And Eaton at one point confesses to Jackson that he's in love with Peggy and that he wants to build a life with her. And Andrew Jackson basically says, if you love the woman and she will have you, marry her by all means. Jackson sort of is one of those guys like you love her, you take her. They're from the West things are different. People die. Your wife dies, you find someone else. You need to build your marriage or your, your, uh, your house and your family. Like you just go and do it. So he kind of tells Eaton, forget all the drama, you know, forget what good respectable society says, just get married. So Peggy and John Eaton get married, but that is not where their story ends. So it is 1828. We have Peggy and John Eaton newlywed, definitely raising eyebrows in the city because of the quickness of their marriage, her remarriage. And we have a presidential election, November 1828. And if you've listened to some of our previous podcasts, you might recall that the election of 1824 had been quite a mess and Andrew Jackson had basically been kept away from the presidency. So when it came time to run in 1828, Andrew Jackson was like, leave no prisoner behind. And he just ran an aggressive campaign, basically four years of campaigning for the presidency, and he wins with the overwhelming support of the American voter. So Andrew Jackson comes into the presidency and he is ready to go. But Andrew Jackson has a healthy distrust of the DC society. He has a distrust of these political creatures who kept him out of the presidency four years ago. So he is gonna really keep his cabinet appointments close. He wants his cabinet to be people that aren't just political allies, but friends that he can truly trust. And this includes, of course, John Eaton, because he has known Eaton long before Eaton went to Washington, D.C., and he trusts Eaton to have his back. So John Eaton is going to become Andrew Jackson's Secretary of War, which makes sense given his, uh, his military background in the Tennessee militia. So he is a cabinet secretary, which means that his wife is now a cabinet wife, which should entitle her to a certain level of societal access. She's supposed to be invited to dinners and teas and salons. This is kind of the top tier, you know, it's, it's up there with the first lady and the second lady.
0: And there is no first lady that's the other thing there is no first lady
1: and this is like do you want to tell them why there's no first yes, lady at the moment do.
0: and this also is going to dovetail into why Andrew Jackson so like very sympathetic towards the Eatons mm-hmm. Andrew Jackson and we should do a whole we should do like 45 whole pods about Jackson there's a lot to talk about good and bad friends but one good thing I think you can say about Andrew Jackson is he was very devoted to his wife Rachel uh, Rachel had been in a very bad first marriage and her Her marital status when she marries Jackson was, let's just say, ambiguous.
1: Again, record keeping in this time was not great.
0: Basically, nobody dotted the I's or crossed the T's in her divorce. Clerical error. Could happen to anybody. Uh, And it causes a minor scandal. And had he remained in private life, that's all it would have been. But when you run for president of the United States, the idea that your wife was married to two people at the same time, potentially newspapers get out of bed in the morning for this. Like this is their jam. And so this becomes a big scandal when he runs for president. And Jackson is controversial as a candidate for a number of reasons, but this is one of them. And very terrible, really, really bad things are said about Rachel Jackson, who is at this point not in the best of health. And this essentially kills her. Uh, He's sworn in. They had a much longer interregnum period back then. They weren't sworn in until March. She's gonna die over that winter. And he is grief-stricken and heartbroken, and he very much is going to blame uh, the sort of gossipy society stuff that goes on in Washington. So he's a widower and newly grieving, and he's now president, and he just does not have a lot of time for all of this society nonsense. And so that's going to sort of play into his friendship with Eaton uh, and with Peggy, who are newlyweds themselves and really she, as a member, the wife of a member of cabinet, they're expected to call on other member, wives of cabinet members and senators. There's this whole routine of going and calling on people and Peggy Eaton, because she has this sort of semi-scandalous past, is going to get completely snubbed by all these cabinet women, including the vice president's wife. Who's, there's no first lady, so she's the second lady, but she's essentially like the top of the heap. And her name is Floride Calhoun, which I love. It's a great more, name. More people should be named Floride. And her husband is John C. Calhoun, who also is a hot mess.
1: We should really do a whole podcast on John C. Calhoun, who you've maybe heard this name, though, in some previous podcasts, like when we talk about Henry Clay. Yes. Um Yeah, Floride Calhoun is sort of like the ringleader of this snubbing of Peggy Eaton. And I think of it very much like it's the original Mean Girls.
0: I was just thinking that exact same thing. This is such like a high school Mean Girls thing. Like Floride's at the top of the social heap and she gets all the other like cabinet wives to go along with her. And poor Peggy Eaton is like, no one wants to play with her. They won't invite her to things and they snub her.
1: It's literally like you
0: can't sit with us. It's so, and it's so, it's high school on the one hand and ridiculous, but at the same time, this is like deadly serious because these are the wives of the people who are making the most important decisions in our country. And so it's this great combination of really ridiculous, but utterly important as well.
1: Now, I find it fascinating because it seems to be, in some ways you could just kind of go, it's just this lady squabble, right? So Peggy Eaton's not getting invited to tea parties, who cares? Who cares? But there is a lot of politic at play because without the cabinet – you know, these cabinet members are refusing to go to social events because their wives aren't allowing them to go. So you have this cabinet that's starting to fracture politically because of what's happening with the wives. And there is some interesting scholarship and some interesting evidence that suggests that Floride Calhoun is no dummy. She certainly has issues with Peggy's reputation, but she also – fears John Eaton as a political adversary to her husband, John C. Calhoun. When you're vice president, there is really only one thing you're thinking about, which is becoming president. And you're Floride Calhoun, you're supporting your husband's ambitions, and you want to get rid of anyone who's going to intervene with you becoming president. So there's also, I think, something to consider here, that she's trying to scare the Eatons away and get John Eaton out of the picture. Right, and she knows how close... Jackson is
0: to particularly John Eaton, but also Peggy Eaton. So you can see her wanting to isolate her biggest rival. And I feel like this all would have been a different story if Rachel Jackson had lived. I feel like Rachel Jackson would have figured this nonsense out and calmed tempers down. But the top job is empty. And it's not going to be filled. Jackson never remarries and makes that very clear.
1: Yet Jackson sort of interestingly has this niece, Emily, who he sort of appoints to be his hostess, as it were. But Emily sides with Floride Calhoun. And Jackson gets so mad at his own niece that he basically kicks her out of being the hostess and then chooses his daughter-in-law, Sarah York Jackson, to be the official hostess. So even in his own family... There is this split among the women. And neither Sarah nor Emily have the social cachet or the really political cachet to control the situation I think the way Rachel could have as first lady. And so Floride is really calling the shots. Yeah,
0: Floride's in charge. And she i get the impression in this story that there's like at least three different gothic novels that we could write here the yearning couple and now there's everyone's lining up on sides and this starts out as sort of a dispute between women and then mushrooms into this entire thing that is paralyzing andrew Jackson's entire cabinet and no one will put down their weapons and make nice you know that people are lining up on either side and it's derailing all sorts of things that Jackson wants to do and Andrew Jackson adores Peggy Eaton and is going to defend her which is just really gonna bother everybody even more like had he stayed above the fray I feel like this might not have become the epic struggle that it becomes But because he wades in on her side
1: he's putting like his thumb on the scale which definitely then makes it not just a ladies issue. It makes it a political issue because he's president. And like, if you were the president's chief of staff and this was today, you would say like, don't comment, don't get involved. This is not worth your time and energy. But are you, what you were saying before, Rachel is so on the forefront of his mind, and the way Rachel was treated, and the gossip and the innuendo about Rachel was so upsetting to him that he sees this sweet young thing and his best friend happy with his new wife, and he just feels for them, and he jumps in. And there's there's another little element to this, which I don't think we're going to dig into, but Jackson rode a very populous wave into the White House. He's hugely popular with the electorate. Jackson is not as popular with the political establishment. And he has to try to work with some of the political establishment to get things done. But this means that he is a little paranoid, is how I'm going to put it. He does not really know who he can trust. He doesn't know who has his back. He doesn't know who who is really supporting him or supporting the political elite working against him. And I think this is honestly all politics could All I should say, all issues in politics probably fall under somebody got paranoid. But especially in this era, it's like if anything isn't going your way, it's because your enemies are out to get you. And so there is something called the nullification crisis, which really centers around a tariff bill uh, in 1828 and then another tariff bill that comes in 1832. And as a result of this sort of debate over tariffs and over whether a state could essentially find tariff laws uh, unjust and unconstitutional and thus null and void – Jackson starts to get really convinced that there are members of his cabinet that are not on his side and working against him. And then there are private letters published and public accusations made among cabinet members. So you have the petticoat affair happening, but you also have all of the squabbling within the cabinet. And Jackson's starting to wonder if he can trust his cabinet and if he can trust John C. Calhoun.
0: Spoiler alert, you can't trust John C. Calhoun. Look his page. If you don't know who John C. Calhoun is, just Google him right now on your phone. The hair is real, guys. <laughs> and it gives you a real insight, I feel like, into his personality. That's all I'm going to say. We'll we on.
1: will put John C. Calhoun's hair in the show notes. <laughs> so, coming to the rescue of all of this is a man that history does not talk about enough, but who I find fascinating. And that's Martin Van Buren. That's right, guys. Martin Van Buren. Woo! Martin Van Buren is an unmarried widower, so he comes into this, he has no wife currently, so he doesn't have a a female person in the game, so he's sort of an outsider to a lot of this squabbling. He is also a very savvy politician. We do not talk about Martin Van Buren a lot today. We should. He was nicknamed the Sly Fox, which is because he knew what he was doing politically Oh, we mentioned him. Also, wait, what was his other nickname? Oh, oh Blue Whiskey Van. Blue Whiskey Van. Yeah, yeah, so if you didn't listen to our presidential <laughs> drinking episode, Martin Van Buren could throw back. So if you listened to our episode on Henry Clay and the election of 1824, you might remember there were four candidates basically splitting the vote. And Martin Van Buren had backed not John Quincy Adams and not Andrew Jackson and not even Henry Clay. He backed Crawford, the guy who had the stroke. <laughs> like was basically useless. So when that election gets thrown to the House of Representatives, Martin Van Buren pretty quickly realizes Crawford doesn't have a chance, but there's so much fighting among the other three candidates. He stays out of it. He just kind of like rises above it. He stays friendly with everybody. And when John Quincy Adams becomes president in 1824, Martin Van Buren is just supportive enough to stay on his good side, but also just critical enough to start laying groundwork with Andrew Jackson. And as the election of 1828 is gearing up and Martin Van Buren reads the country, and starts to see how popular Jackson is, Martin Van Buren decides I'm a Jacksonian Democrat now, and he runs as such when he runs for governor of New York. And his whole run for governor in 1828 is Martin Van Buren basically being like Andrew Jackson is the best thing that's going to happen to America. And he does this because he wants to be in the cabinet. So he runs for governor of New York, he gets governor of New York, Andrew Jackson offers him a cabinet position, and so he's governor for 43 days, the shortest serving governor of New York in its history. That's like, I mean, 43 days is like nothing. So he was named Secretary of State, and he has been serving in the Jackson cabinet. And in just the few months that the Jackson cabinet has existed, he has mostly stayed out of the petticoat affair because he doesn't have a wife. He thinks the Eatons are fine. He doesn't really want to anger Calhoun. So he's just sort of stayed out of it. But he's realizing that what Jackson needs is to shuffle the cabinet. He needs to be able to move people around. And so he offers to resign. Now, Martin Van Buren is no dummy. He knows that by doing this, Andrew Jackson is going to owe him big. And so this means that, sure, maybe he'll be out of a job briefly, but that he's probably going to get a better job down the line. And so once he offers up his resignation, this gives Andrew Jackson the cover he needs to basically redo his cabinet just a few months into his presidency. So all thanks to Peggy Eaton and her reputation and her snubbing, Jackson basically gets resignations from all of his secretaries who are opposed to the Eatons. And he just restructures his cabinet. Now, this includes John Eaton kind of falling on his sword because he wants to do what's best for Andrew Jackson. So he agrees kind of, you know, despite all of this and, you know, despite everything my wife has been through, I will also resign. But come on, he's best friends with the president. So that means he will continue to get really good government jobs. He'll become governor of the Florida Territory and he'll get to be the foreign minister to Spain. So John Eaton definitely gets a good, I think, a good political career out of this. So it's sort of amazing to me that all because of one woman and what she may or may not have done, you know, in the privacy of her bedroom with this man when she was still married to somebody else, it completely upsets the cabinet and it realigns the political situation for the next election because Andrew Jackson gets to basically restructure his cabinet with even more supporters than before. Martin Van Buren is now kind of like, you owe me a favor and I'm just waiting for the right opportunity. And John C. Calhoun gets screwed because instead of getting rid of his enemy, he is now the lone person out of the Jackson administration. Everybody else is now super loyal to Jackson and Calhoun's kind of out on a limb by himself. And then John C. Calhoun makes a mistake. Andrew Jackson is going to try to appoint Martin Van Buren as foreign minister to Great Britain. This is exactly the kind of thing Van Buren was expecting. I resign, you'll wait a few months, and then I will get a very cushy, very easy gig where I get to go abroad, and then I'll come back and I'll run for some, some office. And so this is exactly perfect. I'll get to go live in London. It's going to be so nice. And John C. Calhoun, who as vice president is president of the Senate, And the Senate has to approve these presidential appointments. John C. Calhoun says, I'm going to stop it. I'm going to keep Martin Van Buren from being foreign minister to Great Britain. And I'm going to end Martin Van Buren's career. And he tells a friend, he's so excited, he says, it will kill him dead, sir, kill him dead. He will never kick, sir, never kick. Which is so silly, but also should be a song.
0: And here's the thing about DC, anytime you say someone is dead politically, they're not. They never are. There are always second acts. And this is sort of where Martin Van Buren goes next. This is not the end of his political career at all. This is gonna make Calhoun look terrible.
1: It's gonna look so petty. And just, it
0: finalizes the fact that he's completely isolated. He's obviously part of the president's cabinet, but he's the one member of the president's cabinet that the president can't get rid of because he's vice president. And this is going to cause such a poisoned rift between them that it basically, he looks so terrible that he's ultimately going to resign as vice president. And he's going to come back to the Senate Like, I love that he kind of goes home to South Carolina and, like, gets reappointed back to the Senate. But this is going to end his presidential hopes. He had wanted to run against Jackson or succeed Jackson, but this is going to end that for him. So this whole affair brought about, partly because of his wife's ambition for him, is ultimately going to turn around and bite him. And he remains in the Senate for a while, but... This ends his political career, and it makes Martin Van Buren. Now that the vice presidential office is open, Jackson says, "Hey, do you want to be my vice president?" And Martin Van Buren becomes the vice president. He runs for re-election with Andrew Jackson and becomes the heir apparent, and in fact succeeds Jackson at the end of his two terms. So, ha ha ha, John C. 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 <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's sort of amazing because it would be easy to say this ends Calhoun's career, but it doesn't really. Calhoun will turn back around and have a very long history in the Senate. He will try unsuccessfully to get presidential nominations in the future, but he really came so close. Being vice president puts you so close to having a chance to probably have a successful jumping-off point to the presidency. And even though he will serve in a cabinet later on, he just never gets that close again. And then Martin Van Buren, the old sly fox himself. And I just think about it in terms of timeline. He backed totally the wrong candidate in 1824. 1828, he runs for this very thinly veiled governorship that he's going to use as a jumping off point. And by 1832, he is the vice president to a wildly popular reelected president, and that president loves him. And Jackson makes it clear he's not going to pursue a third term, so it's going to be Martin Van Buren. And they basically, when it's time, uh, when Jackson's second term is up and it's time for Van Buren to run, Jackson throws all of his weight and support behind Martin Van Buren, and it's a thank you. It's a thank you for being there during the Petticoat affair and during these the nullification crisis and backing him on the tariff fights. And then that's how we get President Martin Van Buren. And it's just really, I think, it's, fast, it's a fascinating peek into – political society in this era, because I think, and this is something I'm sure you and I talk about, and I try to say this or bring this to light on my tours, is whatever you think about politics today, the backstabbing and the talking in the press and all of this stuff, none of it is new. And it was almost worse in some ways back then because D.C. was so much smaller everybody really knew everybody your often it wasn't just you it was your wife it was your family everybody was so intertwined and so it's fascinating how these things can spin out into these big national crisis um and let's let's circle back to peggy because yeah. she is really fascinating and there's been i think a little bit of a shift in the viewpoint of peggy in the last 20 30 years of really the fact that she was punished for being a more independent woman for being outspoken I mean she said of herself her tongue was ungoverned and ungovernable same so you know she is just ahead of her time and I think she really is punished by these women for that it's unfair but it makes her sort of this interesting feminist figure yes
0: she's very much like a foremother
1: and I find it amazing because <laughs> she does get married one more time. John Eaton is not her last husband. Eaton passes away ahead of her, which happens. You know, uh, women tend to live longer. Eaton was still older than her, although closer to her age. So three years after John Eaton dies, she marries an Italian music teacher and dancing master. I love that. Uh, by the name of Antonio Buccianani. Oh, I'm not going <laughs> to. Bucciani. Yeah. Um, Antonio, we're just going to call him Antonio. I apologize to anyone who speaks Italian. When they get married, she is 59 and he is in his mid-20s. I love that
0: so much. Go, go, girl.
1: Oh, Peggy. Oh, Peggy. So she just, so this is now 1859. So this is like 30 years after the petticoat affair. And she just reignites all the gossip in D.C. about her when she marries this man who's half her age. And then the seventh year of their marriage, he leaves her. He runs off with her fortune and her 17-year-old granddaughter. Yeah. So her third husband leaves her penniless and takes her granddaughter with her to be his new wife. And so she really doesn't recover from that financially. She dies in poverty in Washington, d c, which is really sort of a shame that is kind
0: of a shame. That's like a, a lot of high highs and low lows for Peggy Eaton.
1: A lot of high highs and low lows. and it's it's amazing to me. I just I keep saying that, I know, but it's amazing to me that she sort of makes these choices and decisions. And she doesn't seem at least based on what we have from her writings, to have regrets about these choices, that at least she felt like she was in control of her life. But it is sort of a little bit of a tragic end towards the end there little bit of tragedy with I think I think the granddaughter that's a little cruel it's a little much so she lives uh till 1879 so she lives a pretty long life uh and she's buried today at Oak Hill Cemetery so we have done an episode on Oak Hill we talk about Oak Hill a lot on this podcast it's incredible Oak Hill is open if you want to go tour and visit during the day Uh, but she's buried there at Oak Hill Cemetery
0: And you can also obviously find some Andrew Jackson stuff in the district. There is on the north side of the White House, a very prominent statue of Andrew Jackson Uh, on horseback. It is I what I tell people about that statue is Jackson designed it and placed it. So you can kind of tell about 85% of what you need to know about Jackson by those two facts. We also are going to talk about uh, Andrew Jackson on extensively on our White House at Night tour. Jackson gets involved in so many different and really interesting scandals. He's a delight, really, in good ways and bad. And Petticoat Affair is... Just I feel like one of those ways in which women's history spills out into national politics when you don't give them the opportunity to actually be involved in national politics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's very much. This is a story of like the power behind the, the person in the position of power. Right. The power behind the curtain. Uh, I love this. This is a story that I know that both you and I include on our White House at Night tour. I love talking about it. Uh, I find Peggy really interesting. I also discovered in working on this podcast that they did make a movie about her called The Gorgeous Hussy, (gasps) 1936. And it has Joan Crawford. Uh, of all people in it so I'm really really interested I have not seen this movie the cast is super stacked Jimmy Stewart is in it which is amazing Lionel Barrymore is in it so I'm going to be getting into my deep dive in the library slash sometimes I have to seek deep on Amazon to find these old movies but I'm going to watch the gorgeous hussy and I will report back. I
0: love it that's outstanding
1: it looks 100% like the kind of movie I would watch it
0: does seem very (laughs) you Uh, who does Jimmy Stewart play he, played- uh, he
1: plays uh, some childhood friend of hers. Yeah. Um, I have a feeling that this is a film with very loose connection to history and what happened. But it just goes to shit. Well, it goes to illustrate a lot of things, not the least of which is Andrew Jackson held a much bigger place, and I think American political consciousness. In the early 20th century, than he does today. There was a time, oh, a long period of time, where he would regularly top the list of what Americans thought were best presidents in American history. So I, I think the the uh, it's not surprising to me. In the 1930s, you could have found someone to make a movie about this. There have been several movies made about Andrew Jackson, including one where Charlton Heston plays Andrew Jackson, and it's all about uh, he and Rachel, and it's not historically accurate at all. <laughs> I'm getting off on a tangent, but um, we watch Heston movies every year, and that's how I know that. (laughs) So that is the Petticoat Affair.
0: That is the Petticoat Affair. Thanks, guys, for coming along with us. Petticoat Fair is super fun, and we're glad you sort of took the ride with us. As always, if you have comments or questions or want to engage with us, please feel free to do so. You can email us uh, at tourguidetellall at gmail.com. We're on the Facebooks. We're on the Instagrams. We're even on the Twitters at tourguidetell if you want to touch base with us that way suggest new episodes uh anything you want us to do a deep dive into we love to get audience suggestions and really to support the pod the really bestest way to support us if you like what you're hearing is to write and review and give us five stars on whatever your podcast app is it helps the algorithms do their thing and gets us in front of more eyeballs and, uh, eardrums. Uh, so if that's, if you really liked us, leave us a review, we would really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, if you um, drop a review uh, in the next few weeks and you leave either your Twitter handle or your page or your business or anything you want us to shout out, we will definitely do that. Uh, we'll give a shout out to everyone who's dropping us five-star reviews. We also want to say a huge thank you to our Patreons, our, our patrons over on Patreon who are so important to us. For as little as $3 a month, you can help support the podcast, keep us uh, working and the bills paid at high, slightly higher levels so you can get free stuff. We have um, awesome opportunities to to get books and goodies, uh, discounts on our merch shop, and if you're in the area, you can even get a private tour, or if you're not in the area, a virtual tour for being a patron. So this is a great time of year to consider maybe doing that. There's going to be holiday tours happening. Uh, we'd love to do a holiday tour for our patrons, so definitely check out our Patreon. It means the world to us, and we're so appreciative of our wonderful patrons who support us. And I'm really excited for our Christmas episode, so we're going to be getting into the holiday spirit, telling you all about how Christmas has been celebrated by our present at the White House. So uh, keep tuning in. Keep listening. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Tour Guide Tell All is researched, recorded, edited, and mixed by Becca Grawl, Rebecca Fackner, Dan King, and Candon Arseniega. All tour guides with free tours by foot in Washington, D.C., Help support us and get some special perks by becoming a patron. And if you don't want to sign up for our monthly commitment, you can also send us a virtual tip on Venmo at tourguidetellall or get some tourguidetellall swag from the merch store, all linked in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week.